I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. For this episode of The Truth of the Matter, we have a very special guest, Brian Stelter, who is formerly the host of the great CNN program, Reliable Sources. He's currently a special correspondent with Vanity Fair, having just wrapped up a fellowship at Harvard. Brian, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So most importantly now, Brian has a brand new book out called Network of Lies, the Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the Battle for American Democracy, which I got to tell you, it's a fascinating read. And I'm not just saying this because I study this stuff, as you know, but it reads like a novel. It's really terrific. What inspired you to write this sort of as, I guess, a follow-up to Hoax, your best-selling book also about Fox News? Listen, I think Fox deserves all the scrutiny it gets and also, frankly, a whole lot more than it gets. The Dominion lawsuit revealed so much about the inner workings of Fox, as well as the Trump White House and the Trump campaign in 2020. And yeah, just because those documents were technically public, they were available through the court database in Wilmington, Delaware, doesn't mean they were really truly available. They were not accessible to the public. They were not able to be mined for gold by members of the public. So that's what I thought I had to do. Take all of the emails and the texts and the memos and the revelations that came out of that case and put them in a comprehensive document so that there's a record of what went wrong at Fox in 2020 and beyond. So before we get into that, and I do really want to get deep into that because your research for this was exhaustive and your analysis of this is fair and it's precise. I want to ask you about current media coverage. We're watching an unprecedented event happening in Israel and Gaza. What do you think of the coverage? I mean, it seems to be every person I talk to has a different take on it, whether it's fair, whether it's not fair, you know, whether this network has it right or that network has it right, newspapers, et cetera. What do you make of this coverage? I think we have to take it, we have to try to take it in its totality, because when we look at individual stories, individual posts, messages on Facebook or X, you know, individual TikTok videos or packages on Nightly News, those may seem one-sided, unfair, incomplete. It is easy, I don't want to call it cherry picking, but it's easy to cherry pick. It's easy to pull out a sentence or a headline that you don't like, that feels wrong, that feels offensive, and to say, well, the media is getting it wrong. When in fact, the media as a whole, in its totality, is trying really hard to cover one of the most complex stories in our year and in our in our lives, really. With that said, I do think there are some missteps and some areas to watch out for. You know, even though there are lots of journalists trying their best to get this right, I think sometimes Israel is held to a higher standard because it's a vibrant democracy with a vibrant free press. It is something that Americans recognize, right? Israel and its system is something that Americans recognize and see and can relate to. And I do wonder if for that reason, sometimes Israel is held to a different standard than other players in the conflict. But again, that's, you know, I'm sure that that's a years long debate we could have. Well, it's a great analysis. I mean, I think Israel is held to an impossible standard that they can't meet. No one else can meet. In some cases, the coverage feels really one sided. But as you point out, if you look at it in its totality, there's a lot to be learned. And it's very hard to do that, to look at it in its totality, because there are constantly streams of of messages and headlines and bites coming at us. And oftentimes information is scarcest when the desire for that information is the, the highest. So, you know, when there's an explosion somewhere in Gaza, we know very little. There's no reporters on the ground. Those who are there, who are locals, are doing their best under impossible circumstances. 
And, you know, I mean, look, the, the, the hospital blast is the best example of this because it has been uh, so criticized. The coverage has been so criticized. But it's one of many examples of when the information need is highest, the information is lowest. And by the time we actually have all the information and can view it from every angle and can piece together the puzzle, people have moved on or they've made up their minds. So some of this is a supply issue, but some of it's a demand issue. Think about what the demand is from the audience. Why does the audience want what they want? And, you know, I think ultimately that's a media literacy challenge and discussion. It's fascinating. I know a lot of pro-Israel Democrats who are now all of a sudden would never have watched Fox News, but now they're watching Fox News because they think Fox News is being more fair to Israel. And that sort of plays into this whole thing that you talk about, that I talk about in my class that Bob Schieffer and I wrote about in 2016, that people are self-selecting what they want to hear in their news. And more so every year because it's easier to do so with every passing year. It's easier to live in an echo chamber, an echo prison of, of your own making. I don't think most people, though, necessarily want that. It, it may be what they end up in. It may be what the algorithms push us toward. I don't think most people want that, though. I think most people want to know what is really true, what is real in the world. They don't want to be fooled by misinformation. They don't want to be deceived by disinformation. They don't want to live in a, you know, in an echo chamber necessarily all the time. It can be comforting some of the time, sure. But I think most people want want more than that. And frankly, it's our social networks and our partisan media that sometimes lets us down in that regard. I think what you said about Fox and Israel is very real, though. The New York Times had a great story about this last month about viewers who would never otherwise turn on Fox, preferring it right now because of the coverage of the conflict. And and for all the criticism of Fox that I'm about to express on this podcast, you know, shout out to Trey Yingst and the other war correspondents at Fox who are doing an admirable job on the ground there under very, very difficult circumstances. Well, let's talk about Fox. You know, we talk about media polarization. We talk about polarization in our in our politics being at its zenith. What role has Fox played in this and is currently playing in your view? I think Fox has made a, a, a divided country much more divided and has contributed in, in dramatic ways to those divides. You know, that's Rupert Murdoch's legacy. Uh, at least it's a big chunk of his legacy, for better or worse. But wait a second. Aren't I talking to a former Fox News producer? I got to watch myself. Well, you are. And, you know, I right out of grad school, my first job was at a little startup called Fox News Channel. And it was <laughs> a startup at the time. 1996, yeah? Yeah, 1996. And so I was there from 1996 through the beginning of Brit Hume's show, where I was one of Brit's producers and produced Brit's show for several years, then went on to cover the White House for Fox News and left around the, you know, a little bit after the turn of the, the century. It was a fascinating ride. It was a really interesting place to work in the Washington Bureau. Back then, the Washington Bureau was pretty separate from New York and from the, the evening shows, but there were certainly elements of what we see in Fox now. I, I particularly remember after the 2000 election. That's when things really felt like they started to shift towards having some bias Fox picking the winner of George W. Bush, supporting George W. Bush. But back then, it was nothing like the way Fox has rallied behind Donald Trump and sometimes not rallied 
behind Donald Trump these days, too. So can you? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Every my view of Fox is that every turn Fox has made in the last 25 years has been a turn further to the right and a turn further away from the news part of the name. Because I remember in the late 1990s, so many actual news programs on Fox, they even had like weekend shows about, you know, health. And it was a robust news operation. And my view is what's happened over the years and other things is that the news part has been minimized. The news part has been shrinking. And the propaganda part has been growing and growing and growing and overwhelming the news part. And some liberal critics of Fox give me a hard time when I say that. And they say, they, they say it's all propaganda. It's all, well, okay, some of the journalists who work at Fox have conservative views and report from a conservative point of view, but they're doing reporting. And I want more of that. I wish the news part of Fox could could expand in order to both debunk and rebut and push back on the, what I view as the actual network of lies, if I may borrow the book's title. You know, when I was there, it did feel it was a robust news operation. I started out by, you know, covering presidential campaigns, went on to, you know, cover big stories like 9-11 and, you know, the 2000 election. And it was a robust news organization. Has that changed that it, that it just doesn't cover the news anymore? I mean, some say the same thing, of course, about MSNBC and CNN as well. I think the, the biggest change in my 20 years covering cable news overall is that 20 years ago, these channels were mostly covering the same stories. And now, oftentimes, they are not. That the, the actual definition of what is news has changed. And, you know, there are flaws about CNN, flaws about MSNBC, but it's it's tilted much more in the direction of Fox, where they're covering stories that either are, are nonsense or just are not national news under no definition should be considered national news. They are, you know, the culture war hot topic of the moment that if not made up are really manipulated, really exaggerated, really designed to deceive you. That to me is the split that's happened. When there's a war in, in Israel, certainly all the networks are covering the war. But on an average day, when there is not some overwhelming story that demands everyone's attention, Fox is off in its own universe, oftentimes covering its own reality of its own making. And that's very different from a CNN or MSNBC. And do you think that's dangerous? I think it's deceptive and, and dishonest and it's disrespectful to the viewers. Whether that crosses the line into dangerous, well, I think we could say that about the end of 2020, because, you know, that's what I document in the book. The lies about the 2020 election being stolen, the lies about companies like Dominion rigging the election against Trump, the lies about what happened. When you tell people over and over and over again, they, they're the victims, they've been robbed, Trump has been robbed. Some of them then do buy tickets to Washington. They do get on planes to Washington for January 6th. They do show up really enraged at the Capitol. And we've heard that from some of the lawyers for the accused rioters. So, you know, where it crosses into dangerous is, yes, when that kind of virtual radicalization that can happen from days and days and months and months of programming, when it turns into real-world harm. I'm looking for a quote in the book that just really really shot out at me. You say in the introduction, actually, studying the liars has dramatically improved my understanding of the political universe. Tell me why you think that. <laughs> well, yeah, I wrote that because in journalism, we are trained to think about what is true, to report what is true, to figure out what is true and separate it from what is false. The, the whole you know, framework of journalism is we focus on the truth and not on the lies, not on the liars. But I think it's important to, to get our, all of our heads around the idea that nowadays in politics, the lies are the story. Oftentimes, lies are the story. George Santos being an extreme example of this. And my friend Mark releasing a book this week called The Fabulous, which is all about Santos. Like, there are figures in American politics that lying is their existence, is, their, is the condition. And then beyond those individual figures, 
the stories some of these politicians are telling are, you know, if not lies, they are rooted in, in so much dishonesty and, and deception. So I think studying that, recognizing it, paying attention to it, looking for ways to resist and push back against it, it certainly helped me understand and navigate this world. I've come around to the idea that, you know, you know anybody who's interested in, in, in what is true, we have to be louder than the liars. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. Newsrooms make mistakes. Journalists screw up all the time. But we're trying to get to what is true. And to do that, we have to be louder than the liars in this environment. Now, cable news, of course, the audience is aging. I think the average age of a Fox News viewer is something like 75 now. MSNBC is 74 and CNN's the baby of the bunch at like 72. So what does that mean if only older people, 50 and older, are really watching these channels? What does that mean for our society? You know, I think it's complicated or it's caveated in a few ways. Number one, you know, older folks are more likely to vote, you know, compared to, you know, let's say a 25 year old your base voters, right? I, I think about the Fox audience as being the GOP base, not necessarily the casual Republican-leaning voter who may or may not show up at the primary, but instead the Fox base is that loyalist who will absolutely be there in line at 8 a.m. on primary day. And that does also sometimes skew older. But, you know, there's there's no getting around the fact that the cable news audience has always been old and is skewing older because as cord cutting impacts these businesses, Younger households are likely not to have cable at all, and so that's shifting the average age even higher, in an even higher direction. One more caveat, though. When something really terrible happens in the world, or something really great, uh, younger viewers still do go to Fox and CNN and MSNBC. They still know where to go, so to speak. I would feel that firsthand when I was at CNN. I could feel the rating surge when there was a breaking news story. And that was mostly driven by younger viewers who weren't otherwise watching, but they come in for those stories. The key point that you've identified is these networks are influential, but largely among an elderly audience. And to the extent that they're influential more broadly, it's not because, you know, this campaign strategist who's making decisions about campaign spending and is watching all the time. He's not, but he's responding to a base audience that is watching, that is consuming it all the time. People always ask, are, are, aren't they losing their influence because they have older viewers? And I think the answer is, is maybe not because a lot of what they do, especially the extreme stuff, gets piped into different social media channels that yeah. younger people then consume. And it's almost like when we were coming up, if you were in the news business, you basically needed to know what the New York Times and the Washington Post were reporting because you would key your coverage off of that. I think this is kind of the reverse here is that people are now, you know, depending on their viewpoint, they're looking at these cable channels and they're pulling bits and pieces of it through social media rather than being glued to the television. Yes, that's another way that these channels are highly influential. They're on in congressional offices. They are on in the White House. They are on in C-suites. They are on at the banks. They are on in places that magnify their importance. And then they are reaching people through social media feeds and setting the agenda for other news websites. When I go on MSNBC, whatever I say is likely to be written up by websites that then spread it far and wide. And if I screw up, then Fox is going to pick it up and they're going to run with it. So those are the multiplication effects, the network effects, I suppose, that are really crucial to cable news. When I read this book, there's stories within the story. There's the overarching narrative of, you know, what happened. And, you know, we're talking about lies and the big lie certainly is the one lie that's impacted American politics the most these days. But what do you want readers to take away from this book? Look, I wrote it because I wanted these Dominion documents to be on the record. A lot of them weren't even Googleable until I put them into a book. I think that, that one of the takeaways is that, you know, this political system, as broken as it is, the incentive structures are as flawed as they are, you know, 
at the end of the day, it's all so human. <laughs> the people making decisions at Fox are human. They are reacting to human incentives. They are reacting to human feelings of ego and selfishness and greed. The people who correctly called the election for Biden, you know, they're just people and, you know, they're trying their best. And then the other folks at Fox who, who couldn't possibly accept that Biden was going to be president, they had to deny reality. They had to assist Trump in his coup attempt. They're people, and they're reacting to whatever their incentives are, whether it's ratings, whether it's money, fame, fortune, you know, friendships, you know, not wanting to piss off their family, like whatever it is. And so when I think about that way, I think these things are, they're not fixed. They're not stuck. We're not stuck in cement forever. Incentives can change. People can change. Public pressure can make an impact. It does make an impact. It does have an impact. You know, recently when there was that explosion by, by, by Niagara Falls, by that border patrol office. Fox News initially said it was an act of terrorism. They quoted sources saying attempted terrorist attack, car full of explosives, terrifying reporting, spooked millions of people, was totally wrong and had profound impacts. Fox walked it back hours later. But I'll tell you, even though they didn't really fess up to what they did wrong, there was embarrassment. Like that reporter was embarrassed. There were people there that were embarrassed. And, and some people might not believe that. They might think oh, Fox is immune from embarrassment. They don't care. They just wanted to scare old people who were watching before Thanksgiving. No, it's not true. They actually did feel some shame. Public pressure did have an impact. They hated those stories, pointing out they were wrong. So I say all that just as a, as a tiny example of how incentives can change, how pressure can matter, how attention on these topics can make a difference. Chris Steyerwald, one of the Fox employees who called the election for Biden and was subsequently fired, talks a lot about how all of this is really just driven by the bottom line, all, the almighty dollar. How much of this is driven from a business standpoint, in your view? I do think it is largely about the, the profit motive. And we see that in the emails from Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News Media, who refers to accurate fact checks of Trump being, quote, bad for business. Now, she would argue that she was referring to some intramural battling between two different people at Fox. That's, that's nonsense. I believe what she was saying in her email was, we can't keep insulting the audience by telling them the truth <laughs> because it's bad for business. And, you know, she took this personally. Like she, she was championing in 2020, she was championing Fox Nation, a relatively new streaming service. And there's an email from her that says, you know, we've lost 10,000 subscribers to Fox Nation. The implication was that 10,000 people who were ticked off about Fox accurately saying Biden would be president <laughs> had canceled the streaming service. And so she was feeling a, a direct impact on the bottom line, even more direct than ad sales or ratings. She was feeling subscribers canceling because in the minds of some Trump fans, Fox was not being loyal. Fox was not being sufficiently supportive. Fox was not being MAGA enough. So, you know, I do think we have data points in these emails from Dominion that show that it is about the profit motive. And we saw that they got really, really worried about Newsmax all of a sudden. Newsmax, which had kind of been at a very low hum, a lot of castoffs from Fox were working there. You know, it, it was a channel that I think maybe, you know, people that are a little bit more extreme would watch, all of a sudden it became, you know, the ratings were eclipsing Fox News and people got worried. Well, we see it in the Dominion emails. We see staffers emailing about Newsmax, worrying about Newsmax, even though the, the ratings impact was actually rather minor. Like Newsmax was only barely a fly on the back of the elephant. There were a handful of times that Newsmax ever beat Fox in any demo at any hour, but it was the, the fear of the possibility. It was the threat of that possibly happening. 
that was a factor. And again, I guess it's the profit motive. Fox has a near monopoly on the right in the United States. It is the beating heart of the GOP and of the GOP media and of MAGA media. Not always comfortably, right? Not always perfectly, but it is the center. And any disruption, any risk that, that could be disrupted was a real panic. Now, I will say they learned from that in 2023 because in 2020, they did freak out. The people did panic. We're bleeding eyeballs, the producer said to me. There was a real freak out. But by 2021, the audience came back. The audience came home. And in 2023, when Tucker Carlson was fired, there was a similar ratings collapse. Viewers rushed to Newsmax for a while. But again, they came home. And I think Fox executives felt more confident, knowing what happened in 2020, that they could even fire their biggest star and the audience would come back home. Let's talk about Tucker. Your book dives into this whole Tucker episode and really examines it thoroughly. People still may be wondering why exactly he was fired, but you come to some pretty good conclusions as to what really happened. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I think it, it wasn't one thing. It was everything. There was no single episode or, or single betrayal or something. It was a, an accumulation of insults and missteps and disinformation campaigns. I mean, look, he was on the air spouting conspiracy theories that, that no other show on the network would touch. He was promoting falsehoods about January 6th, for example, that were so outlandish that the Capitol Police rebuked him, that Mitch McConnell rebuked him, that other Fox shows wouldn't cover it. Other Fox shows only covered it to debunk it. Like He was off on his own island, and he literally lived on two islands. Like He wasn't in the office. He was in his remote studios doing his own thing. And I describe him in the book as becoming unglued. Now, I'm sure he would tell his own version of that that makes him out to be the hero, but you know, I, I think he got way too high on his own supply. I think he mistreated people internally, female executives, for example, messages that he was sending using cur you know, curse words. Those messages, you know, they were dredged up by Dominion during this legal battle. And you can imagine how hard it might be to still work with someone after you've read their hateful messages about you. There's some practicalities to this that made it harder and harder for Fox to hold on to Tucker. And what happened to his audience? His audience was so loyal, loyal to the point where they would see a news item such as Tucker Carlson asked Hunter Biden for advice on how to help get his kid into Georgetown University. And in the same breath, you know, Tucker's on the air talking about Hunter Biden being, you know, the worst person on earth. And it didn't seem to matter because his audience was so loyal. They didn't believe necessarily that Hunter would have ever possibly asked a fellow Washingtonian in the establishment for help. Right, right. That's a great example. It's because Tucker so successfully, so cynically told a story of us versus them in group and out group. And, you know, others do it. Others are Fox, others on other right wing channels. But he, he was in some ways the most skilled at doing so. And as a result, his audience was and is some somewhat still incredibly loyal. But I would say overall, there's still more audience of the platform. They're still more loyal to the platform, to Fox, than they are to any individual individual host. So some Tucker fans have, you know, followed him to X, but most of the audience that was watching Fox at 8 p.m. is still watching Fox at 8 p.m. now for Jesse Waters. And, you know, Jesse Waters is a, he's a provocateur. He's a conservative entertainer. He says a lot of the same things Tucker was saying, but he doesn't quite go out on the same conspiracy limbs. What you just said about Tucker and, and Biden... What that is, is it's treating the audience with disrespect. Like, that's that's where I come back to that idea that, you know, 
yes, Tucker viewed himself as I'm able to, to tell you the truth about the elites because I grew up elite. I know them. I am them. I know it's the same until Trump makes. But, you know, fundamentally, it's it's disrespectful to go on the air and, and every day and tell your viewers that the world is ending and that the Democrats are not just that, that, that they're evil, that they're that they're perverts, that they're, they're pedophiles. Like the narratives that we've seen from the far right, ultimately, you know, they do so much. They do so much to divide us, to harm us, as opposed to help inform us. Sorry for rambling, but it kind of grinds my gears. So how does this play out in our politics? We we see people like Tucker who dominate the airwaves or at least the cable airwaves for a period of years. Now that he's faded a bit, he's not talked about as much. No one seems to really be calling for him to run for president, at least not in this cycle. He's not at the forefront of the news, but Fox is still going strong. So what impact, though, does all of this have on our politics going into an election year? Well, number one, during the Tucker Carlson era at Fox, there was a Tucker primary and candidates were competing for his support, Ron DeSantis and many others. In Tucker's final week, he had RFK Jr. on the air, for example, and Larry Elder, who was running for president. So there was this kind of competition for Tucker's support. And now we're back to a more standard model, which is a competition for Fox's support, a so-called Fox primary. And it seems so far, that Fox is still siding with Trump. Now, Trump doesn't feel that way. He thinks the network is not nearly loyal enough, not nearly nice enough to him. He has all sorts of rants against the network and Rupert Murdoch and Mitch McConnell, et cetera. But the reality is that Fox is helping Trump clear a path. Fox is helping Trump walk away with the nomination because they're not standing in his way. Rupert Murdoch said after the January 6th attack, we're busy making Trump a non-person. We're pivoting away from Trump. Tucker Carlson said Trump is elderly and retiring. There was clearly an effort to break from the Trump era, to bury it down the rabbit hole, the memory hole, to never speak of it again, never speak of him again. But Trump clawed his way back. He found his way back to center stage, partly by denying what happened on January 6th. And so, you know, I think Fox has helped clear a path for him. What does that mean for our, our politics? It means, well, it means we're going to have probably have a rematch, right? Maybe a lot more than two candidates, but we're going to have a Biden-Trump rematch. And we're going to be in this environment of mis- and disinformation where we have a former president saying so much stuff that's so wrong that it breaks the usual systems of journalism and media. I'm not talking about the Fox newsroom, but you know, major American newsrooms will once again struggle with what to do and how to deal with a force like Trump. And do you think that MSNBC or CNN or the New York Times or anybody has any real idea about how to cover Trump at this point, even after all this experience? Well, I go back to that totality point that, yes, in the totality, there's so much strong coverage, there's so much scrutiny, there's so much fact-checking and reality-checking that goes on. There have been these great series about what Trump will do in 2025 if he regains power. There have been these great exposés by Axios and the New York Times and other places, you know, excellent reporting by lots and lots of outfits. And yet, that's not what pops in the forefront of the mind when you think Trump in the media right? At least not what pops in the front of my mind. What you think about is the fire hose of falsehood that he shares and his allies produce and a media that is so invested in a sense of normalcy or in treating parties equally, treating candidates equally. The, the process of normalization happens with something that's very abnormal. But, you know, listen, I'm, I'm like everybody else now on the sidelines with my own frustrations about this. When I was at CNN in the middle of it, you know, I, and, you know, I, I think I can speak for, for my colleagues who were living through the, the Trump years and to some, some degree. We were trying our best every day in an unprecedented situation 
to try to tell people what was actually happening while recognizing that by doing so, you become an opponent, you become an enemy, you become labeled an enemy of that figure. And that is a very powerful message for Trump to sell, right? And we know he's do, he's going to do it again because he does it every day. He's going to tell his fans and the rest of the country that anybody who speaks out against him is his enemy and thus their enemy. That demagoguery, to me, that's the it's the hardest part. And it's not necessarily something the media can do anything about. You know what I mean? If that's not for journalism to solve. Going into this election, you're going to have competing narratives all over the place. You have this legacy of what happened in the last election. And now, you know, television news is, of course, a form of entertainment. You even have things like Sean Hannity's new debate that he's having later this week between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. Was that debate drawn up for ratings and to be sort of like a, a, a cage match? Or is Fox News try, really trying to educate viewers because you've got you know, two really prominent governors who are at the opposite of the ideological spectrum who are ostensibly are going to have, you know, a reasonable debate about the issues. That's got to be in some way a good thing, doesn't it? I think it's a great thing. I'm personally very excited for the Hannity event. Yes, you know, he's doing it for ratings. Yes, you know, there's an element of entertainment. There's also an element of this is a country that's tired of a gerontocracy that wants younger politicians, that wants a younger generation, that wants new energy. And that's what DeSantis and Newsom represent. It's almost a little bit of wish fulfillment about a version of a 2024 election that many people wish we could have that we're not having. I find it really interesting. And I give credit to, to Hannity and Fox for pulling it off, for, for being able to, and also to the candidates. I mean, it, what was critical was Newsom being willing and wanting to do this. You know, Newsom's the one that had the leverage here. But you know, to me, of all the critiques of Fox, and, and yes, they're doing it for the ratings, it's going to be really interesting to have this California versus Florida fight. Also. The narrative on Fox about California is usually very one-sided, woefully incomplete. So for Newsom to be able to, to speak himself, to be able to do it in his own words is really important. Yeah. And if you watch a lot of MSNBC, the narrative about Florida isn't quite as extreme as the narrative about California. But, you know, the narrative about Florida is centered around Mar-a-Lago for the most part. I think that's I think that's true. There's certain MSNBC shows that it also really emphasize DeSantis and you know what he's done with uh, books and what he's done with education and the incredibly critical narrative on that front. That's true. You know, I look at this and looking ahead, if Trump is the nominee, if Biden's the nominee, there's a good chance that they won't debate each other, right? Right. Right. That's true. You know, and so here you have two governors who are actually willing to debate each other. So there's got to be something in there that is positive to take going forward. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's a better, that's a version of Fox that I wish we saw more of, that I wish we saw more often. Again, it's contingent on these candidates participating, but it's it's actually back to the old style of Hannity and Combs. I know you remember this show. This was, you know, the, the so-called good old days of Fox News. First, you know, 15 years of Fox News, Sean Hannity on one side, liberal Alan Combs on the other side. People said, yeah, Alan Combs is not as loud and he's, he's a puny next to Hannity. Hannity's the big, strong, tough guy. Sure, all that was true, but it was a real debate. It was a real debate on Fox News. You rarely see it anymore. The only time you kind of see it now is on the five when it's one host versus four. And the whole point of that show is the right is always right. So, you know, to, to actually have and foster real debate is something that I, you know, I think Fox is going to be rewarded by high ratings and they should be. 
And we used to see this, of course, you know, starting in the days of the McLaughlin group where they would have people from all ideological spectrum. You know, we'd have more Kondracki and Fred Barnes and you'd have Pat Buchanan and you'd have different people. Then, of course, you had Crossfire on CNN. I wonder if you think that maybe, just maybe, some of this stuff may come back. Well, everything uh, in television, everything old is new again. Everything new is old again. So yes, I think is the answer. Crossfire was rebooted once before. You know, I would prefer to see a show called Ceasefire, which is more about trying to find common ground, trying to find ways to heal. Now, the issue with that, of course, is it's not as compelling sometimes television-wise. If, if, if what you're trying to do, and this is what I see in the Dominion emails, if you're trying to produce a show that keeps people scared and angry and upset and pumped up, then you're not going to do Ceasefire. You're not going to do pro programming about finding common ground. You're not going to do programming about being civil and civilly engaged. But, you know, I think we should recognize future media is all the above. Yes, there's going to be so much rage bait, so much stuff that just tries to press your buttons. But it's incumbent on all of us individually to, to resist that and to, to steer toward the higher quality, more nutritious news and material out there. People always ask like, okay, so how am I supposed to consume the news in a responsible way. You've talked a lot about media literacy. What do you think Americans should do? We see some legislation in different states instituting laws to teach young people media literacy at a young age and throughout you know, school. Where do you think the responsibility is in, in that space? So I'll take it from my four-year-old's point of view, all right? In a decade, he'll be 14. In 20 years, he'll be 24. He's going to have to navigate an information environment that will be even more complex than it is today. An environment that will be in some ways even more poisoned because most of what's on the internet 10 years from now will be you know, computer generated, you know, AI generated, much of it garbage. The challenge for, for my son, for my daughter, for all of us is going to be how to separate trash from treasure, how to know the difference. If we're in this like proverbial garbage dump, <laughs> but, but we know there's treasure in it. We know there's something worth having and preserving and keeping and supporting in it. And you have to be able to know the difference between you know, a headline that's sensational and trying to deceive you, trying to make you angry or trying to make you spend money versus a headline on a 10,000 word investigative piece that a reporter spent a year working on. Part of this is on the companies, on the newsrooms, on the media enterprises to label, to explain, to find new ways to package and to signal, hey, we worked on this for a year. <laughs> hey, this is the definitive take on X. And I mean, it's why people still write books, right? So part of it is, I think, on the media industry itself. And then a lot of this is on consumers and on teachers and on you know the education system to help provide better ways to separate trash from treasure. So I'm thinking, actually, the other big missing piece here is the, the technology companies, the platforms, the Googles. There's so much more they could be doing to help people know the difference between the actual New York Times and my mom's blog that looks like the New York Times, but is not. Look, I have seen progress. I'm, maybe you have too. You know, a decade ago when we were just talking about fake news for the first time, actually made up stories designed to deceive. Google would sometimes prioritize the made up stories because they were more clicky. They were more, they were being shared more over the fact checked. Nowadays, there was a story written about me after I was booted from CNN that said I had been arrested by a military tribunal. I had a fact checker reach out to me trying to see if it was true. I don't want to respond. I don't want to contribute to this, right? But if I don't, then, you know, there won't be a fact check and all that will be out there is the lie. So thankfully, a nice lady at the Pentagon denied that I was in military custody. And a few weeks later, same crazy website said I had been uh, sentenced to death at Guantanamo Bay. And then a few weeks after that, they said I had been executed at Gitmo. So I'm thinking, how do I prove I'm still alive? I sent a selfie to show I'm still alive. But that fact check, and I, I give Google credit for this, that fact check appears higher than the lie. The lie's still out there. People who want to believe it still will. They'll think that I was you know, hung at Gitmo. But at least 
has prioritized the the fact check over the fiction. And I'd like to believe that there's a lot more these companies can do along those lines to help people see and know the difference between trash and treasure. Brian, thank you so much for coming on today. Listeners, the book is Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the Battle for American Democracy. It's a book that everybody should read. And I know that everybody will learn a lot from. Brian, I often think about your mentor, David Carr, and what he would think now of our media and all this. And I take great pleasure in reading your work because I feel like some of his wisdom certainly has come through you and you're the new David Carr. I don't think that's possible, but I appreciate you saying that. And uh, now, yeah, now we got to end this because it can't get any better than that compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a million, Brian. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 